Turn to Exodus. We're moving toward the front of the Bible. We're kind of like polar opposites of where we've been when it comes to the pages of the Scripture. So if you don't know where Exodus is, uh, since this is new to us, just ask that you look in the table of contents and you will find, uh, you will find the book and the page number. And there you can uh, follow along with us in Exodus chapter 20. And starting in verse 1 and 2. Follow along with me as I read. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you open up these words to us today. As we begin this series working through these Ten Commandments, we ask that you would convict us of sin that you would show us your love and grace in them as you restrain evil. And we ask that you would use them for our own sanctification as you show us what you require and what it means to live a holy and godly life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Growing up, I was forced to read Lord of the Flies. Has anybody ever read it? Lord, okay, most of you in school. Uh, It was one of the first books that I ever enjoy actually reading, and uh, um, I think I've been reading ever since then. The basic plot of Lord of the Flies, if you've read it, you know this. Middle school boys are on a plane that crashes near an island. The survivors are the middle school boys. No adults survive. With no adults, that means no authority. Thank you. (laughs) They try to maintain some semblance of order as they they create these meetings and there's a conch shell that is passed around and you can only speak if you have the conch shell. However, the order quickly deteriorates as some of the boys prove to be lazy and not helpful. They start picking on each other. They start fighting with each other. And the climax of the book is we we find this island full full of flames. One of the boys is already dead from an accident. And there's this massive death chase as there's one boy being chased by all the others. And it is chaos. And the resolution comes in the form of a naval officer whom the boy runs into. And all of the other boys catch up and they see now an adult on the island. And these boys who thought they were so strong and bad and fighting with each other and, and it was chaos and anarchy, now in the presence of, a, of an adult, they all burst into, into tears. They all sort of revert back to their ages. And authority has, has arrived. It's, it's in many ways a parable of a society that exists without any ultimate authority. In Baltimore, 42 homicides in the month of May. We look around the United States of America and we see problems of greed and injustice severe racial discrimination 
and violence in South Africa, leadership abuse and a coup and craziness in the country of Burundi. Iraq continues to shatter in a culture of post-dictatorship problems around the world. What's wrong with the world that we live in? Why are there wars? Why, even though we have laws, is there such violation of them? Such violence. Even those who are in place to maintain order and authority often abuse their positions. Why? The Bible answers questions that baffles sociologists. Here's the answer. We are a bunch of children living on an island by ourselves, seeking to create some kind of order, yet constantly rebelling against the order that we have created, constantly rebelling and fighting with each other, constantly lifting up our tribe over another tribe. We are a society that has no ultimate authority. Now, it's not that the naval officer doesn't exist. It's not that our captain is gone. We actually have an officer. We have a captain. We have a president. We have a lord. Yet we have rejected him. You see, we want a God who is a God of grace. We like that aspect of God. But we want a God who essentially lets us do whatever we want to do. We want a God who coddles us and tickles us, makes us feel good, and does not ever violate our personal freedoms. We don't want a law-making God. And so we have rejected him. Eight out of ten Americans consider themselves Christians. It's pretty shocking, isn't it? Eight out of ten Americans, when checking a box on religion, would check Christian. Now that's declining, but it's still pretty high. Now six out of ten Americans can't name you five of the Ten Commandments. Does that tell you anything? Not even five. So you got some dudes fighting to to keep Ten Commandments in schoolrooms and on courtroom walls, and I would love to say, can you name me five while you're fighting for this? What are you fighting for? Because you don't want a lawmaking God, do you? You don't want a sole authority, do you? You don't want an ultimate leader, do you, who tells you what you must do? You just want a God who coddles you and helps you along. Now, I would imagine that church-going Christians, meaning Christians that actively try to work out their faith, not just by name but in practice, probably wouldn't do much better than the average American in naming five or ten Ten Commandments. Uh, I really, really would like to give you all a quiz, but... I don't think God would permit me that right now. Uh, 
but I wonder how many of us could name five of the Ten Commandments. I wonder how many of us could name ten of the Ten Commandments. I wonder of, uh, how many of us could put them into order if we could name all ten. <laughs> now look, we like God's grace, but do we pay attention to His commands? Regularly as a church, we recite together the Ten Commandments. Why do we do that? It's because they're important. Every week, as Montrell said, every week we're going to be reciting the Ten Commandments during this series. And it's going to help us to learn what God commands. Here's my whole point this morning. I was actually going to get into the First Commandment today. And as I worked on my sermon, I realized that I need to just turn my introduction into an entire sermon. So that's what this is. And my whole point is this. God is a lawmaking God of grace. He is a law-making God of grace. And so therefore, we must know and obey His commands. Three major questions that we need to ask as we, or really before we, begin this series on the Ten Commandments. The first question, why? The second question, what? The third question, where? Why, what, and where? First, why the Ten Commandments? Why are they so important? Why do we recite them? Why should we care about the Ten Commandments? Some might say we are a New Testament people, not an Old Testament people. So why should we care about the Ten Commandments? That's the Old Testament. Aren't we New Testament people? Others might say we're a Jesus people. We're not a Moses people. And Jesus came and gave us grace, not law. So therefore, we should not have to worry about the Ten Commandments. Others might say we are under the New Covenant. And since we're under the New Covenant, Jesus has replaced all of God's laws with new laws, and so we don't have to worry about the Ten Commandments. And so then, therefore, we should leave the Ten Commandments where they belong, and that is in the Old Testament, in the history of of God's people. And we can read it as history and appreciate it, but it's not for us today. True? False. Are the Ten Commandments for us today? The answer is yes. Why? Number one, it's because God's law is perfect. God's law is perfect. Psalm 119, 160. David says, all of your words are true. And all of your righteous laws are, does he say temporary? Until Jesus comes? He says all of your righteous laws are eternal. David goes on in Psalm 19, verse 7, he says the law of the Lord is perfect. Everybody say perfect. perfect. He says the law of the Lord is perfect. And then he adds something that is shocking to us. He says it's refreshing to the soul. How many of us, as we read the Ten Commandments together, say, ah, oh, that was so refreshing. I feel refreshed. I feel like I just took a hot shower. Wonderful. Well, David believed that God's law, His commands, and what are they? They are summed up in the Ten Commandments, are perfect, eternal, trustworthy, and refreshing. So does... David believed that the law at some point would be relegated to the past? That God would at some point set the Ten Commandments aside and move on? 
Well, others who are in this room that are Bible people and you love to study the Word and you love theology, you might say, well, wait a second. Romans 7, we've died to the law. We've been raised with Christ. So then, therefore, everything that was part of the law is gone. We're dead to it. It's no more. We died to the Ten Commandments. Or Galatians 3, all who are under the law are under the curse of the law. So how is it possible that we're still under the law? Are we under the law or are we under grace? Right? Good questions. Right? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. We're going to turn around uh, the Scriptures today a little bit, so if you're quick on the draw, turn with me. If you're, if you're a little slow, turn with me anyway. It's the only way to... By the way, I, I appreciate those of you that have phones and everything, but actually having a Bible with pages, it helps you learn where things are at, all right? So just a little plug, all right? 20 bucks, you can get yourself one. By, uh, Matthew chapter 5... <clears throat> Verse 17. I, I feel like I just embarrassed everybody that's looking on their phone right now. <laughs> hey, it's, you're still looking at it. It's, it's fine. You just don't know where it is. That's the problem. Do not think, Jesus says, that I have come to abolish. Everybody say abolish. abolish. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but he says I have come to, look at the word, fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth passes away, not an iota or a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of God. Or the kingdom of heaven, I'm sorry. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. What does Jesus think about setting aside some of God's commandments and relaxing them? He doesn't have much to say about that, does he? Jesus says, I haven't come to get rid of God's commandments. I've come to fulfill them. Now, what does Jesus mean by that? And in what sense are we no longer under the law? Which is a true statement. We are no longer under the ceremonial aspects of the law. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 17 says that all of these ceremonial things, how you trim your beard the sacrifices, day after day. Issues of blood and how you deal with it. All of these ceremonial things, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, they were all, he says, shadows of what's to come. And that was Christ. So Christ was the end of the ceremonies. He was the sacrifice. And all of the ceremonial laws pictured in, uh, uh, were, were pictured in, they were shadows of, Christ, and they were fulfilled in Him. So they're not abolished either, but they are fulfilled in Christ, and they're done. So we no longer continue with ceremonial laws. Secondly, we are no longer under the demands of the law. So we see this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, where Paul says, for as many are of the works of the law are under the curse of the law. So what Paul is saying there is if you believe, and if you're not a Christian, you need to hear this part, if you believe that you can in some way follow God's law and earn His favor. He says that you are of the works of the law, which means that you are trying to attain God's grace, or God's favor rather, through active obedience. And he says if you are then of that mindset, 
then you are still under the curse of the law. And the curse of the law is what? Death. You are a lawbreaker and your life is now required of you. But since we are in Christ, and for those who are in Christ, Christ followed the law uh, perfectly. Christ died bearing the curse of the law for us on Himself. We then died with Christ. We were raised to new life with Christ. We are now freed from the demands of the law because they have been satisfied in Jesus Christ. And so we are dead to the law in that sense. And we are raised and married with Jesus Christ, Romans 7. Are you tracking with me? Yet God's moral law is perfect. It's eternal. Not just simply attached to a period of time. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 21. You could turn there if you're super quick. Speaking of the coming Messiah, it's a messianic chapter. We get to verse 21, and it says that the Lord is pleased to magnify the law. Well, that, what, what I believe Isaiah 42 is saying is, in this messianic era, as Christ comes, the Lord is pleased in Christ to magnify the law, to lift it up, to expose it, to show it for what it truly is. And this is exactly what Jesus did in his life. The Sermon on the Mount isn't a replacement for the Ten Commandments. The Sermon on the Mount is a magnifying of the Ten Commandments. It's showing us what God always required, not what he now is beginning to require in Christ. But Jesus is saying, oh, you thought that, that, that the command, do not murder, Uh, which is the sixth commandment, was just simply about taking someone's literal life. No, no, no. What What God has always meant by that is that if you hate in your heart, you're a murderer. So the law is magnified in Christ, and he, 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 he shows it for what it is. He expands it. John Gill said, the law of God, great and honorable in itself from the author, and it becomes more so, more great, more honorable by Christ being made under it, by his perfect obedience to it, and by his bearing the penalty of it, and by Christ holding forth the law in his hands as a rule of walk and conversation to them, by all which receives more honor and glory than by all of the obedience of creatures to it. What John Gill, the 17th century theologian, is essentially saying is just simply this. The Ten Commandments is a Jesus document. There's nothing required in God's law which is not for your progression and fruition. God's law is good for you. And if all you walk out of here this morning is that, then that will be a good thing. Nothing God requires of you today is for your harm. Do you believe that? That's the next question. So the Ten Commandments, are they for us? Yes, God's law is perfect. Secondly, God's law is absolute. 
which means that it's, it's exhaustive. Does anybody know why the Ten Commandments, this is kind of a pop quiz, are typically portrayed on two tablets? As if God couldn't fit all ten onto one tablet? <laughs> he needed, needed two? Just tablet size? Oh. Well, let me, let, here, here's a help. Does anybody know how Jesus summarized the Ten Commandments? Love God. Love your neighbor. Look at Exodus chapter 20. The first four, I'm not going to go through them verbatim, but the first four commandments, you know what they have to do with? The first tablet. Love God. It's, it's this vertical relationship with God. How we interact and how we are to come before God. How we are to worship God. What it means to have a right vertical relationship. Commandments 5 through 10, you know what they're about? The second tablet, exactly. Love your neighbor. That's the horizontal relationship. What it means to live in godliness with each other and to love our neighbor. Now, our society says, man, we like tablet number two. Right? But we don't want anything to do with tablet number one. So, do not murder. Yeah, good. Do not commit adultery. Almost every society in some fashion has these as, as, as laws or at, at least as standards. Do not lie. Do not steal. Yeah, good. These are good things. The horizontal stuff. We should, we should enact that and we should live according to these things, but we don't want anything to do with the first tablet. Love God. Why is it that there are 42 murders in Baltimore in the month of May? It's because it's because we can't separate the Ten Commandments from each other. It's because we can't just simply take this latter half, take the second tablet, and say, "Hey, we want to be a people about this, about these things, about each other, about loving mankind." Yet we do not want to be a people that love God. We can't do that. You can't break the Ten Commandments apart. So they're exhaustive and and they come together. They are absolute. So in this sense, if if you are a person who uh, follows Commandments 5 through 10 perfectly, which, by the way, is impossible, but let's just assume that that it's possible. You're doing your best to love other people and you are generous and you are kind and you are fighting against injustice and fighting against racism and, and, and you never tell a lie, all right? You, you are living this kind of life, yet you are ignoring commandments one, two, three, and four. God doesn't care about your obedience to the second tablet alone, all right? God says, I'm not even going to say, God doesn't even say, well done. <laughs> it's nothing to God. We can't break these apart. You see, you see the point here. So the, the Ten Commandments are God's absolute and exhaustive law. If you are breaking the Ninth Commandment, lying at work, you have an issue with the first four commandments. If you are breaking the Seventh Commandment, do not commit adultery, and you are cheating on your spouse, you will have broken the first commandment of having no other gods before you. 
So what is the use of the Ten Commandments? This is our second question. First, why the Ten Commandments are important. Secondly, so what's the good of them? How, how do the Ten Commandments actually help us? Three things. First, they show us that we need a Savior. They show us that we need a Savior. How do they show us that we need a Savior? Have you ever been to a party and you're interacting with people and you're smiling and laughing and eating and, and everybody's having a good time and you think, you think so much of yourself in that moment and then you go to the bathroom and you look in the mirror and you kind of give yourself that smile that you've been, and you, and you realize that there's a big old fat piece of peppercorn <laughs> stuck between the middle of your two front teeth. Uh, in that moment, how do you feel? <laughs> you see, the law is first a mirror for us. It shows us who we are. It shows us that while we thought we were really something, everybody else was looking at us and saw the peppercorn between our teeth. It shows us the holiness of God, the reality of our sinfulness. And it crushes us. It shows us that we need a Savior. If you are not a Christian, this is, this is where you'll be until you become a Christian. I don't know if I want to go back to that church. I don't feel good after I go to that church. Look, it's not my job to make you feel good. When I stand up here, I stand trembling behind the Word of God. And the law of God first crushes us. It shows us what God requires of us. Reveals to us that we are sinners. And you say, you know, I felt better before I even went to church this morning. The truth is, you felt better before you looked in the mirror and saw the peppercorn between your teeth. But at least now you know it's there. You have to make a decision. What are you going to do about it? Are you going to run from the mirror? Or are you going to look for a Savior? There's a father talking to his child who is shuddering. The child had a fear of being damned. And the father asked the child, why are you so afraid of going to hell? And the child said, because I do not honor my parents. And that's in the Ten Commandments. Now the father has one of two options in his response. A, he could soothe the child and say, God doesn't really require that of you. I know that's there, but God loves you. God doesn't really require that of you. It's okay. God's got you. Or, the father could say, you're right. That is what God requires of you. And if you don't honor your parents perfectly, then God's judgment is indeed coming upon you. And as the child shudders, the father, with a tear running down his own cheek, asks, 
do you believe that you need a Savior? And the child says, yes, I need a Savior. And the father then can explain the fact that Jesus honored his father and mother perfectly. Jesus lived a life of active obedience before his own father perfectly. And when he died on the cross, his righteousness was given and imputed, available to all of those who call upon his name. And his death covers the sins of all of us lawbreakers. Do you want Jesus to be your Savior today? You see, you see what the law does for us. In Romans 7, 7, Paul says, I didn't even know that I was coveting until the law told me that I was coveting. I didn't know that I was a sinner. I didn't know that I was a, a liar. I didn't know that I was a rebel. I didn't know that I was a sex addict. I didn't know that I was a racist until God's law came to me and confronted me and the mirror was shown and I, and, I, and I saw myself for who I am and I fell on my knees and I said, I can't do this. I need a Savior. And God said, now you're finally at the point of humility. And here is your Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the first use of the law. The second use of the law is this. The law restrains evil. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 through 10 says that the law is not given for righteous people, but the law is rather given for lawbreakers and for rebels. As part of God's common grace to humanity, the law of God is written on the hearts of humankind. Why is it that if you go to societies around the world who have never heard the name of Jesus, you'll often find that the laws that they have created look a lot like the Ten Commandments, meaning you shouldn't murder, you shouldn't steal. There's reper repercussions for, for, for these things. Why is that? It's God's common grace that we are wired in some ways. We are built as human beings to, to know these things. And so we intrinsically in our being cringe when someone is murdered. It's not because society has trained us to cringe. It's because of the law of God. And so while imperfect, while still struck with sin in all of our ways and in every bit of our being, God's law exists as common grace to keep the world from devolving into the hell it would be without God's common grace. The law restrains evil. Thirdly, the law serves for our own sanctification. So the law first crushes us, the law also restrains evil, and the law also serves for our own sanctification. John chapter 14, verse 15. Jesus said this, if you love me, you will keep my, everybody, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Exactly. So Jesus, as the theologian John Gill says, holds forth the law and says, this is what it looks like to be obedient. This is what it looks like to be a citizen of my kingdom. This is the law of the king and of God. There was a horse, a wild horse, that was captured by traitors. 
And the horse was put into chains and was put for sale, put up for sale. A man had compassion on this horse and with his money bought this wild horse who was in chains. The man didn't want to keep the horse for himself, but the man wanted to free the horse. After the horse was bought, he was put into the trailer. The man drove the horse back to the hills which the horse once ran. And he unloaded the horse from the trailer and took off the chains. Surprisingly, the horse stood there. It did not move. And the man said, you're free. Go. And the horse didn't move. The man took his hand and whapped the butt of the horse and said, you're free. Go. Run. And with that, the horse ran. I love the way the theologian John Gill explains the third use of the law. He says, The law is to the flesh like a whip to a lazy and ornery donkey to arouse it to work. You see, this third use of the law is actually controversial in some, some circles, some Christian circles, maybe even with some of us. We might say, look, God is a God of grace. All right, so I like the first use of the law where the law shows me that I need a Savior. All right, so whenever I hear a command of God that you should not do something, I'm like, oh, I, I'm such a sinner, I keep doing that, and so therefore I need a Savior. And then I continue to keep reminding myself I need a Savior through continuing to fail to follow God's law. So on, at some level, strangely, oddly, we actually like the first use of the law. It crushes us. And it points us to God's grace. But we don't like the third use of the law. Which says, you actually should do these things. You actually must be obedient to God. Not for your salvation, you're saved by grace. But you're saved, you're freed, not to remain in slavery to sin, according to Romans but you're now slay a slave to Christ. You're in chains to Christ. And you are now to follow the law of God in Jesus Christ, your King and your Savior. Jesus' commandments, love God and your, love your neighbor. The, the summary of God's law, this forms our worldview as Christians. And so there's no, no part of society that we go into as Christians no, uh, in which we don't also go into as citizens of God's kingdom. And so as we go to work, there, there are certain rules and certain order that's maintained, but primarily we are citizens of, God, uh, of God's kingdom, and we are first and foremost obedient to God's law, not man's. And so whenever man's law might look different or go against God's law, whose law are we to follow? doesn't matter if it's the law of the state, the law of your job, we are to never disobey God to obey man. As we go into our marriages, we have worldviews that are framed by God's law. As we live as single people, we have worldviews that are framed by God's law. As we go into all parts of society, we go as citizens of God's kingdom, obedient to His law. Now, where is grace in all of this? This is our third question. So first, why the Ten Commandments? Secondly, what's the use of the Ten Commandments? Thirdly, 
where is grace? Because we are a people of law or grace. We're a people of grace. So where is grace in all of this? The answer is this. It's written right into the preamble of the Ten Commandments. Look at chapter 20 of Exodus, verse 1. God spoke all of these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I am the great I am who revealed himself to Moses and said, look, I'm not asking you to go on your own to Pharaoh. I am will go before you. When Pharaoh asks, what's the name of your God? This is what you tell him. I am. I am, he says, the great I am is speaking. I am your which means that you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, as it says in 1 Peter. You are a people of God's possession solely by His grace. I am your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, which means that not only am I the great I am who has chosen you, but I, not yourselves, I have delivered you. If you remember the story of the deliverance from Egypt, there were just a couple supernatural things that happened. That's not just to surprise us to make great storybooks for kids. Plagues and the parting of seas and and lights by night and fires and all of these things were to show us that this is God's doing. If it wasn't for God feeding Israel in the wilderness, the manna, if it wasn't for God opening up rocks and letting water come out so that they might drink, they would have died. The very reference of Egypt is a reference of God's grace. You see, the Ten Commandments, the law, is rooted in God's goodness and His grace to a people. The world in which the ancients lived was a world that would throw their baby daughters away because girls were not valued. The world that these people lived in among the pagans was a world of bloodshed, of murder, of violence, cutting their flesh uh, to, to appease pagan gods, children that were placed onto an altar for the god Molech, And then the children would be lit on fire and they would die. Children of sexual, or I'm sorry, a a people of sexual abandon. Incest, rampant. In this world, God gave his people a law. And the God of grace who gave his people a law said, You are not to kill your infants. You're not to throw your baby girls away. You're not to sacrifice your children on the altar to the God of Molech. You're not to cut your flesh. You're not to commit incest with your sister. You see, the very giving of God's law was an act of God's grace for His people. And it still is today. 
when we go to God's commands, we're not going to just one mean aspect of God who wants to show us that we need a Savior. We're going to a God who is gracious enough to say, this is what it means to live. This is what it means to be a human being. This is what it means to progress in life. This is what it means to be fruitful in life. Love God and love your neighbor. The Ten Commandments draws for us a line of love. And God says, this is what love looks like. And so then, therefore, we are to obey God's law. Not out of the old letter of the law, uh, uh, duty-bound kind of obedience, but out of a heart obedience. Let me close with this illustration. There are two kinds of obedience. The first kind is the kind of obedience with which you pay a parking ticket. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but in your hearts, being that we're all Baltimoreans, how many of us have had a parking ticket within the last year or so? I said, no, you don't have to raise your hand. Okay, okay. since some of you did, I'll join you. We, we started budgeting in, in parking tickets a couple of years ago. Just make that a line item. Now, I, when I pay a parking ticket, I pay it to keep the city off of my back. When I pay a parking ticket, I'm not like, oh, such a joy. I just want to support this city and support the, the people that give us parking tickets. That's not part of my love for Baltimore, all right? I do it so I don't get a boot on my car. Compare that to this kind of obedience. Though. I remember when I was a kid, some of you that have never been hunting, just bear with me, all right? My dad took me hunting when I was a boy. He taught me how to hunt. And uh, although my dad, I don't think he ever killed anything, so I don't know what he taught. <laughs> he taught me how to carry a gun. That's what my story is about. So we were out in the woods, and I was carrying a 12-gauge shotgun for the first time. And there was a law that came with the 12-gauge shotgun. My dad said, the gun must be always pointed toward the ground. Safety must always be on. You never release the safety until you are aimed and ready to fire. Your finger stays off the trigger at all times. You don't put your finger on the trigger until you are aimed and ready to fire. Never point the end of the barrel at any limb of your body or at any other person. Keep the gun pointed down toward the ground at all times. I remember the first time walking with a 12-gauge, I followed that law to a T because I did not want to blow off my foot and I didn't want to kill my dad. You see the difference in obedience there? I know that my dad loves me. I know that he's, uh, he's giving me the, the, these commands out of love. I feel the weight of the gun. I sense the responsibility that comes with holding a 12-gauge. So therefore, I am going to willingly, lovingly obey every bit of my dad's commands. Why don't we think that way about God's commands? Do we not believe that God loves us? Do we not believe that His commands are good and for us? Why don't you look at God's commands in the same way? Why are we so frivolous with God's commands? We know what God's commands are, and then daily we just walk away from them. 
We say, you know, I'm going to swing the gun all over the place and I'm clicking the safety back and forth and I don't care what God says. Why? What about God's commands, is it? Friends, maybe it's because you don't feel the weight of what it means to be a human being. The responsibility of what human life actually means. The goodness of life. The gift of life. And maybe it's because you really don't understand the giver of life. And the fact that He truly knows what's best for you. Grace and law, they're not they're not opposites. Grace and law are sisters. They come together side by side, hand in hand, from the same God of grace, who is a law-making God, who gives His law for His people. This is why middle school boys who have been living as rebels in anarchy, harming one another, fall to their knees and weep together as one as the naval officer arrives because they know that they need an authority. May we be a people who understand that the law is magnified in the hands of Jesus. And may our response be, yes, help me to know your law and to be obedient to your law. First, let your law crush me. Let it remind me of who you are and who I am, that I need a Savior. May I be reminded of that now so that I might be saved. May I be reminded of that all my entire life so I never trust in my own works for salvation. And may through your grace, may you give me the power and the strength to love and obey your law. St. Augustine, the great African theologian, said this. He said, the law commands and grace supplies the strength to act. I pray that you will join us over the next 10 weeks or so. I pray that the response to this series for many will be an, uh, an uncomfortable soul. As you wrestle with this God who is commanding. And I pray that for those of you that do not know Jesus, that you will be crushed under the law and that God will not let you go until you cry out for a Savior. And I pray that as we seek to be children of God and to grow in His grace, that the God of grace will show us the goodness of His law and that we will delight to be obedient to Him. Amen? So join us next week as we begin the Ten Commandments. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this time that we can look at the fact that You are a law-giving God who is also a God of grace. We pray that as we do look at the Ten Commandments over the next ten weeks, that You will help us, that You will create a sense of urgency within us to turn to our Savior, and that as we find Christ as our Savior, that we will see that Your laws are not bad. We pray that You will help us to delight in obedience. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.